here we go. I am so excited to share this episode with you. But first, I want you to picture this. Picture your dream home. How many bedrooms does it have? What kind of flooring is down? What's the backyard look like? Do you live in the country or in the city? Whatever that is, Laura Lee can make it happen. She is a real estate agent with Better Homes and Garden Real Estate in the Bryan College Station, Texas and surrounding area. And that's what she did for us. We had a dream of a house, of owning our first home, and we had an idea of what it would look like. And lo and behold, Laura Lee got us that exact thing. And she made it enjoyable. She even made that big pile of paperwork that you sign at the end that has a bunch of lawyer words in it. She even made that enjoyable. So when we got done signing, those smiles and those pictures are genuine. So whatever it is, if you're looking for your very first home or you need to upgrade because you need more space or you've had a dream of owning your own business and you need that commercial property that fits your needs, Laura Lee can get you in any of those things and make it enjoyable. So please give her a call at 979-218-2315. That's 979-218-2315. This episode is with Paul Watkins and he's a mountain climber, an ultra runner, a public speaker, business owner, you name it. He's done so many different things. It was such a pleasure to get to hear his story and I can't thank him enough for coming on the podcast. I actually have to say Brian Healy and I have been talking about doing a show where we interview people who have done some epic things and their mindset and how it works to let people know that anything that they think of or dream of is possible if they put in the work and and so he's on the episode as a co-host and there's going to be more of these coming down the line but just to give you an idea he's he lives in australia and he just won the antarctica 6633 ultra marathon over 380 miles yeah i'm gonna let paul tell you the story of how he did it his mindset his training his outlook on life He paints the perfect picture. So, without me babbling on anymore, please enjoy this episode with me, Brian Healy, and Paul Watkins. All right, Paul, we're rolling now. Excellent. Yeah, well, thank you for being on. Like I was telling you earlier, we were talking about, uh, um, I'm fascinated with ultra running, mountain climbing, all the different things that you seem to do, like being a business owner, (laughs) everything down the line so uh, I'm just gonna kind of let you take it and explain I I actually got I have a co-host on this episode Brian Healy yes sir he's with us and um, I we actually kind of got your information Brian sent it to me where you had won the Arctic Ultra 663 is that correct three three six six three three yeah double six double three that's the one yeah so Tell us about that. I looked it up and I kind of did the calculations off your uh, kilometer thing and it looked like it was going to be 381 miles. Yeah, so yeah, we're um, 614 kilometers or 383 miles depending on kind of which measurement you want to use. Either way, it's just a really long way. <laughs> <laughs> Does, doesn't matter how you cut it. Um, I came across this race two years ago, or nearly three years ago now, um, and my athletic background, and I should have a disclaimer at the start going, I don't consider myself an athlete, I'm a nerd who's ended up in really weird places 
through part naivety and part trying to avoid other things and just ended up getting some mountain climbing background and ultra running done. And I, I came across this race. Um, it was listed in the, an outside magazine article, listed as one of the top 10 toughest races on the planet. I'm like, oh, right, let's, let's have a flick through this list and, and see what we can find in here. And I, I've always chosen races or climbs because of where they are in the environment rather than, oh, that's something that everyone knows and that would be really cool to be able to tell people you've done that. I think that's a terrible reason to do something. I, it had to be something that I wanted to do for me. And if no one ever knew that I did it, would I still be happy I did it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, then that's the event for you. Um, and looking at it as an Arctic event, I'd been lucky enough to spend a season climbing the Antarctica several years ago now, and I'd, I'd, I'd climbed on every continent, and I'd never ticked off the Arctic Circle. So I'm like, Beauty, this is a race that no one's ever heard of. It looks sufficiently ridiculous, and I get to tick off the Arctic Circle. Let's do that. <laughs> so <laughs> I signed up and, and headed up there in 2017 and attempted the race um, and suffered the fate of 80% of all people who attempt this race and got well and truly thoroughly DNF'd about 250 kilometres into the what was then a 580-kilometre race. Um, so I got bounced well and truly hard and came back and, and licked my wounds for a while and, and gave it some thought and and really looked at it going, well, you can either count that as a DNF, it did not finish, you know, a failure, or you can just say that was a you know, stupendously painful and somewhat expensive training camp for your next attempt. So I decided to go with that mentality uh, and went back. Uh, just recently, this March in 2019, and tackled the race again, which is now longer. Between 2017 and 2019, they changed the course and added an extra 30 kilometres because, you know, it wasn't tough enough to start with. So I <laughs> found myself back on the start line two years later going, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that it seems like that seems to be their MO, though. Like, they did that one in Utah... And then they immediately want to press the envelope and do a 300 miler. Yep. <laughs> like, or, or I think they're even talking about 500 miles at some point. Like, it, it seems like they just, it's like, oh, well, that wasn't hard enough to run that far. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's a limit somewhere. And, and um, I felt that 383 miles was more than sufficient. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. That's, I, I, I can't, I don't even like running a 5K that much. And, you know, that I, I can't imagine going that far. But what I love the mentality that you had of of using it as like a learning, like a, a whole learning curve type of thing. Mentally, you looked at it. You didn't look at it as like you failed. You're like, I'm going to learn from my lessons and, and get better and go back at it. Um, yeah, I do. Um, I talk to a lot of school kids as, as part of what I do about my climbing background and races, and I, I always tell them about the fact that you know they, these are kids who are at the end of high school here and getting ready to head off to uni or what have you, and I'm, I try to encourage them to understand that you're going to fail. It's going to happen. It's a, it's a foregone conclusion. So accept that already and start making peace with that. At some point, you're going to have some failures along the road, whether it's career or life plans or you know major sporting events. But if you start having that mentality going, well, that's going to happen anyway. So what am I going to do about it? Because it's going to happen. So now you can start changing that mental approach of going, well, what did I get out of it? Who did I become as part of the process? What did I learn? And what's going to be different about me going forward as a result of that? And it might not be that you go back and do it again, or you might not achieve a certain goal. But what changed about you in trying to get to that point? What did we learn from it? And I think that's 
that's particularly for me talking to younger kids it's something they need to I, I try to impress upon them like you know, failure is part of the process and that makes you normal that's okay what did you learn paul like going from 2017 to 2019 like what was the difference in you like in your mindset really i think the there were two aspects to it. Physically, I changed my training uh, quite a lot, um, but mentally, I changed how I approached the race. In 2017, I went in with that, you know, that I've got a photo of me on the start line on both years, and in 2017, I've got this big cheesy grin, and I'm all excited, and you can, you know, you may as well have tattooed naive on the front of my forehead or something, and I'm just, you know, wait, this is going to be great. You know? And then 2019, you look at me on the start line, and I'm dead serious. There's no smile, and we are here to execute the plan. So I think uh, mentally, I, I came back and went, okay, well, you, you well and truly got your bum handed to us on a plate, so what did we learn out of that? Okay, I wasn't prepared mentally and emotionally for the difficulty of, you know, that constant, like, you don't, there's no stage checkpoints in terms of, well, we can come inside and sleep tonight or do this. It's, we start and you've got nine days to get to the end. So, and the clock is on 24 hours a day. You don't get to have a break. If you want to sleep, sleep. If you don't, don't. We don't really care. That's up to you. So you don't have that downtime at any point in there. So I found the nights, as did a lot of the competitors, really emotionally and physically and mentally just an absolute battering so i came back going okay i need to be a lot more mentally prepared to proactively perform in that environment so when i came home the training changed from a physical point of view how i approached it but i really paid attention to my mental approach so i went back and started reading you know into the stoics and those kind of things to kind of get some a better mental approach but i also started to pay attention to what's the inner dialogue when you're out training and when you feel not like training and when you're halfway through a training session it's 2 a.m in the morning and you're cold and miserable and you've got another long day coming tomorrow what were the the discussions you were having yourself and i, I really trained myself to be conscious of what was going on upstairs that when you're on your own for that long that inner dialogue is is everything so really wanted to focus on what that was going to sound like that, well, yeah go ahead that's like i mean it's inspirational just to hear that in a whole. And I love the reading about the Stoics because I'm, I'm really fascinated with that too as well, like that whole theory behind things. I think it applies to just about anything that we do in life, which is kind of where I want to go with this, is how did you train yourself mentally to like talk to yourself other than like the Stoic stuff? Did you, you start practicing it like – in a daily routine with everything that you did, like with your business that you own and the, you know, how, how did, how did that all tie together as far as like, because being out there for that long by yourself, I mean, solitary confinement is a real thing and it's a punishment for a reason. So, you know, like to be able to push through it is really, is, is really incredible. So I kind of want to know how you prepared yourself mentally, like a little more in depth on like, did you talk to yourself during the day in the middle of workouts? Did you, did you happen to tell yourself something different? You know, how, how did that process work? Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting, and, and you raise a really good point. When you start training yourself that way and you look into those kind of methodologies, you realize that you can't separate that inner dialogue from your training program to what how you live your life. Um, so I found that as I started to be really cognizant of what the voice upstairs was saying to me and how I felt and how I was reacting things. Uh, and I found that 
I would then have that same discussion with myself when I'm dealing with my kids. I've got a one-year-old and a three-year-old, and I love them completely, but at times they can test you. <laughs> um, and I would, I would have that, you know, I'd be about to, you know, blow in the stack, and you go, hang on, whoa, whoa, you're, you're out of control here. You're, you're reacting emotionally and subconsciously, and you're not in full choice of your decisions about how you're reacting here. Hang on, let's, let's take a moment, take a deep breath. Let's have a conscious decision about how we're going to react to this. And that meant that discussion was the same thing when I was training. Um, and part of it is the, the timing of it. Like from a mountain climbing background, typically on a summit day, you would leave at like midnight or 1 a.m. To, to attempt a summit because it's going to be a really long day if you're going from high camp. And when the sun would rise, that for me was always a really uplifting moment because you've been in the dark for five, six, seven, eight hours and you're exhausted and the sun would come up and it would lift you. Um, so when I was training for this race, I purposely would go out at sundown. So I'm like, okay, we're going to go out, we're going to watch that sun go down and we're going to head into the dark and the cold and we're going to be comfortable with that. So 2017, that race, the nights have been brutal for me and I wanted to prepare myself for 2019 so the nights will be where you'll thrive this is going to be your space i'm going to be really positive about that so first thing was put yourself in the uncomfortable spot of we're going to be doing the training at a time that is race appropriate not enjoyable for you and just be cognizant of what, what, what what's going on in there when you get those low points what, what are the, the senses going through your mind why do we feel this way is it something we can fix and if it is fix it if it's something you can't fix start dealing with it and go well i can't fix it so we have to get through this section or deal with that section or finish this distance and then or break it down in a different way but let's just chip away at it particularly with the longer sections in that race it's kind of going the, the mileage has to get done one way or the other so you can complain about it but you still have to do the mileage and now you're just doing it whilst you complain or we can do the mileage and be happy and smile and, and, and enjoy where you are and appreciate the fact that you are privileged enough to get out and do this kind of thing. So it really was that, that discipline of having that mental practice of going, how are we approaching this? Am I making a conscious choice about how I feel? And am I improving how I feel in this situation, if that makes sense? So, Paul, are you talking about something that we talk about a lot, actually, which is embracing kind of the uncomfortable uh, like not shying away from what you're afraid of. Um, I guess my question is like, if you did you take the emotion completely out of it? Like for, in essence, like, so you're talking about making a conscious choice to go into a situation you know normally in the past that you did not feel comfortable in whatsoever and it almost like gave you some type of fear or anxiety and now it, by doing that over and over again, making a conscious decision to go ahead and go head, head on into it, you became better? Yeah, I think it's a it's one of those little bit of column A, little bit of column B. Part of it was put yourself in that uncomfortable positions or put yourself in the positions that you know you will face, you know, in the race environment, in my example, so that we are better prepared for it. And I, I don't think you can eliminate the emotion out of it completely. I know in the latter stages of the race, those last few days, I relied on emotion heavily as a, as a fuel source, basically, to allow me to progress. And I think if you you block all those out and you're, you're discounting something that's very important. But the, the trick is to have that conscious awareness of whether you're utilising your emotions to help you or whether your emotions are running the show and deciding how the day's going to, to pan out. So, um, you know, when people say, you know, you act out in anger or something like that, you're not making a conscious decision about 
what you're doing or how you're doing it. That choice has been stolen from you because you're so emotional about it. So I, I still wanted to have the emotions there, but I wanted to be in control of them and utilise them in a way that was helpful and beneficial rather than just letting letting them run the show and all of a sudden I'm not making the best choice and, and that's going to lead to, you know, a poor execution of my race plan and that's going to end up with a result that I don't want. Well, that's, that is something that I think on constantly when it comes to like pain, the same sort of theory where understanding like some people say that they may be tough with pain, but they might medicate for that pain at the same time. And, Mm, and my thing is the pain is telling you something. It's important to acknowledge the pain, but it's also important to know yourself well enough on how to push when you should push through when you shouldn't, when you should take those breaks, when you shouldn't take those breaks. I think that's like an excellent point. You can't make it and finish this race without that sort of mindset. Yeah, exactly. And I think I read a good quote last night. I think it went along the ways of, you know, the body will whisper before it screams. And if you listen to the whispers, you can avoid a lot of the screaming. So it's a case of if you can be in tune and have a listen to what's going on. Um, during training, you need to be conscious that there's no point getting to the start line and you're broken before you start, but you still have to put the work in. So it's that, that balance of listening and hitting the right days. And it's that balance of going, even on the days when I'm like, I really, I'm not feeling it, I'm tired, and I've had a lot of work, I've had bad sleep, or something's a bit sore, of going, okay, you may not get done what you would plan to do today, but we will get something done. Um, I mean, training over the course of a, a full year, um, you know, you, you have bouts of getting the flu or something like that, and it's a case of going, okay, we're still going to move a little bit every day and get something done every day. And all of a sudden, when you look at that, from a 365-day approach, you're like, wow, we got a huge volume of work done, even though we weren't doing some epic training session every day. When you look at it from that kind of helicopter view, you go, it's okay to have a day where you don't do as much as you thought or you get a little less than you thought or you need to have some recovery because in the big scheme of things, as long as we're still moving forward, we're still moving forward. I, lo- I, I really like that because um, even with – on our day-to-day lives, like whatever our business may be with our family, we're going to have hiccups, bumps in the road, like days where we're just not on top of it. And Mm -hmm. it can be kind of defeating. I mean, I get the same feeling. I'll like, I'll be going through and I'm a real happy guy and super positive, but every now and then it creeps in like, man, you're having a bad day. And how bad, you know, if the only way to get through that bad day is what I tell myself is just, just keep moving forward. The same sort of thing you just did. Like, Keep moving forward because the option is forward or backwards, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, just just keep chipping away. I mean, I have days where I'm like, I don't even know where to start with the to-do list for today. <laughs> and on days like that, I'm like, you know, if, if you can't even get the to-do list done, do something because then at least you're doing something. And then just hit a few jobs and all of a sudden maybe you'll start to see a pattern for what I can get done today and go from there. But as long as we're making some progress, um, we're getting somewhere. I think um, – Things John Wellborn who said, you know, training's like moving a big pile of dirt, and some days you get a shovel, and some days you get a spoon. But as long as you're moving some dirt, it doesn't really matter. Oh, just touch my heart. But... <laughs> <laughs> you're making you're making Brian cry. Yeah, here. Well, no, well, two, two, John Wellborn is a he's a, he used to play for like one of my old uh, or still my my team for football. So, and he's still like, oh, there we go. Yeah, exactly. I'm hitting all the right points. Yeah, you are. But um, so here's the. I mean, you already touched on it, and it was actually a quote that I read in your journal that I thought was really cool about. How you say you're not an athlete, but you're a nerd that likes to climb mountains. 
Um, which, yep. to, uh, which to us doesn't, it seems like okay. But so you talked about didn't finish in 2017. Not only finished, but you didn't mention this one in 2019. Yep. You're talking about you changed, was... you changed your training, you changed the mental aspect of it. What would you say percentage wise was more important? Was it the training or the mental? Like if you had to give it like 80 20 or 50 50, or what was it? Oh, look, I think it was probably. It, it almost changed. It was almost like a, um, a spectrum over the course of the race. Like you have to be physically prepared to do the distance and, and survive the, the temperature. I mean, you're, you're dragging the sled. The sled's not overly heavy. Like my sled was about 50 pounds, somewhere around there, kind of 20, 25 kilos, which is, is not overly heavy. But in the first 200 kilometers, you've got to get over the Richardson mountain range. So now it's heavy because you've got to get over a full mountain range. Um, so when you've got it on the flat, it's quite nice. You've got to be able to, to maintain a body posture for, you know, 23 plus hours a day for over a week that allows you to move that sled and not crumple and fold in the meantime. Um, so there's there's a physical component to it. And, and I think to the first portion of the race, it was really just your body's here to work and you execute the plan and you move and you, you drag the sled and you get through those tough sections. So that's really just... Your mind's fine at that stage because it's early. The first 30 hours of the race in 2019, I didn't a single skip. I had a five-minute coffee break. And other than that, it was 30 hours, go, 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 get over the mountains, get through that kind of sketchy weather area, and then we could have a break, took a couple of hours off, you know, and then we can start the plan of, you know, okay, now we've got a, a, a structured race plan of when we're going to sleep and how we eat and those kind of things. And as you progress into that, that middle range of days, that mental aspect becomes more important because the body's starting to get a little bit weary and, you know, the sleep deprivation starting to load in and you've been on your own for a long time and you're going into another night and you know it's going to be freezing and you know it's going to be long. And then towards the end, it's, I think it's, it's 50-50. It's kind of that, that mental game of staying strong, but you still need the, the, the chassis and the engine to be in good enough shape that you can get them over the finish line at the end. So I really think you... I'd hesitate to put a kind of a, a fixed number on it. I think it's really a sliding wall, and you have to yeah. give them equal preparation, but you've got to be able to kind of flex and bend and, and rely on one or the other as, as you know, uh, the time dictates. Well... I have so did you started out were you doing mountain climbing before ultra running or or is this something you were doing both at the same time and what what was it that piqued your interest in this sport in the first place I got it's funny I got into ultra running because I was taking a break from mountain climbing and I got into mountain climbing because I was trying to get out of work so <laughs> 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 So let, let me put some context around that. Um, my, my original training is um, I'm a pharmacist by training originally, uh, and I still I still am registered and still practice as a pharmacist. Um, and I was a business owner, so I own my own retail pharmacies at a. Um, this feels like lifetimes ago now, but this is kind of early two thousands. Um, and it turns out, as a pharmacist, I make a really good business owner. So I had <laughs> businesses. Um, and I, I found myself at a point, I had like two businesses that were open seven days a week. I, was, I had 60 employees. I'm working seven days a week. And I, my body was, was I, I didn't listen to the whispers. And I was getting the screams, mate. If we don't stop and take a break here, you're going to fall apart. 
So I took a break. I, I literally got the map out one day and went, oh, Kathmandu, that sounds like somewhere that wouldn't have Wi-Fi or internet or emails. Fantastic. Let's go there. So I went there and did this really basic low-level trek and loved it and thought it was really great. And I came back and thought, look, that helped me recharge the batteries a little bit. What can I do next? And um, my grandfather in World War II fought in a place called New Britain, which is just off the coast of New Guinea, uh, north of Australia. So I went there and I retraced his footsteps. Um, he's still alive, he's 98 and, and cruising. Um, but I went over there, retraced his footsteps. I did the Kokoda track in New Guinea, came back and thought, you know what? I'm loving actually having a degree of my own life back and trying to get some health back because I was terribly unhealthy just through you know work and stress and that. And I really made that decision of going, well, you can stay at work and you're going to die here. They're going to carry out in a pine box in 30 years and you'll have people go, well, he was a really successful businessman and that's it. Um, or you can get out and do something different. So I actually sold up my businesses and said, okay, we're going to turn left here or turn right and, and go somewhere different. And I took a few months off just to have a rest and I went, okay, I did that track. What will I do next? And I went back and did a slightly harder climb in Nepal. I'm like, oh, what do you do next? And then just kind of went layer on layer. And next thing you know, I'm catching a, a ride on a Russian military jet out of South America heading into the Antarctic to go climbing there. And you're like, I, I never, we never discussed this in my careers day of high school, but I ended up <laughs> at this point. You know, this was never part of the plan. So anyway, I, did, I got quite heavily into uh, mountain climbing. Uh, I was... Uh, climbing Denali uh, in Alaska um, and it took me two guys to climb Denali I went there one year and got randomly turned back and, and sent out I got a chest infection and the, the climb was over and came down went back the next year was successful the summit and came back but they had a, they had a pretty tough year there were six fatalities in the, the Denali National Park on mountains that year and they had about 36 evacuations I think off Denali that year and it was just, I got off there and went, you know, I, I love it and I really enjoy it, but I felt like I'd found my kind of risk-reward limit, so to speak. Um, and your life progresses by that stage, you know, I got married and then kids come on the scene and all of a sudden, you know, what you're prepared to risk isn't about you anymore, it's about what you're risking on behalf of other people. So, you know, what? maybe I don't need to decline the, the hardest and toughest in the world. Took a break and you like I'm a dad now and I'm a husband but I'm still me and, and how do I retain some of those identities and I wanted to still go out and, and push myself and, and test the limits a bit and got into kind of ultra running is going oh well I'll run a marathon and okay that went all right I wonder what, what's a 50k feel like and what's a, a 50 mile feel like and, and next thing you know you're doing 383 miles in the Arctic so I'd love to tell you that there's been this really strategic great grand master plan of how I ended up here but it has not been like that at all um, and then you end up here. This is the best. Like, this is the best way it <laughs> could honest. happen. Like, it's you just honest. kind of followed one thing to the next thing to the next thing. Like, you just, oh, I like that. Let's do this. Oh, I like that. Let's do this. That's pretty much. I mean, there was there was conscious thought about you know how that still fitted into what I was doing at the time. And and now I look back a little bit and and I I'm understanding a little bit more about kind of, and I probably didn't at the time, but about the whole, well, you you and you go do your things and then you become a husband. So are you just a husband or you're a husband and still you doing your things? And when you become a dad, you've got those, I look at it, you've got those identities, but you still want to retain those individual identities to a degree, but you need them to complement each other. It's not a case of, well, I'm a dad now, but I still climb mountains three months of the year. Bye. I, that for me doesn't work. But I'm like, well, how can I 
retain those things that are important to me but make sure that they add value to me as a dad and a husband and, and those kind of things. So for me, I've really enjoyed the juxtaposition of finding how that all kind of works, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, totally. It totally makes sense. And now, I, you said something there, and I want to know, did you get married in between the pursuit of this mountain climbing, ultra running system that you had going, or were you married previous when you had the pharmacies? How, how did that work? No, I got married and I was already well into my climbing career. People often ask my wife, they're like, are you okay with this? Like, he's <laughs> in the middle of the Arctic. And she's like, I knew what I was getting with. I know what I signed up for. Like, I knew what he did for me. And I understand that. And, and I don't want to impinge on those things that are important to him. And, and I'm the same for her. She has goals for her. And I'm like, you get 100% from me because you give me 100% and that's how we roll with it. Um, so she kind of already knew. But by the same token, we have some hard and fast rules. It's a case of I must come home alive, 10 fingers, 10 toes, and success is a bonus. So I've had climbs where I've got to the point, and even in 2017 when I pulled out of the Arctic race originally, um, when you pull out, the medics are always like, you know, hey, have a sleep, eat something, let's just get past this, you know, you're just having a damn minute, you know, let's let's have a think about it, and if you maybe we get another checkpoint in, um, and they said that to me, and I'm like, guys, no, I'm going to break the rule, I, I'm not going to do that, like, the rule is you come home 10 fingers, 10 toes, you know, healthy, um, and I'm going to break that rule, and, and no medal at the finish line is worth that so i've reached my limit you're gonna be picking me up off the side of the trail and in six hours time a frozen popsicle up there i'm not doing that so pulled the pin and i rang my wife and sat phone and cried and said i couldn't do it and she's like have you given it everything you got like you do you have another step in you no then you're done come home you, you know people say you gotta go find your limits you found your limit so come home and we'll regroup and we'll figure the next step out and we'll go from there. So it is that, that balancing act of, of finding what you need to do for you, but then utilizing it in a way that still allows you to deliver in the other parts of your life. Did you come, uh, did you come close to that limit in 2019 or did you come close to breaking that rule? No, not at all. I had, you know, some days you have days where everything goes wrong and you're like, I should just go back to bed and we'll restart because this isn't going to plan. Um, yes. I had the opposite of that. I just had one of those races where everything went well. And I think it was a mixture of I was really, really well prepared, conscious of the fact that the best laid plans will get put through the shredder about four minutes into any race. But I had one of those races where the plan stood up. And, were, and I just had, a, whether it was part training, part preparation, part you just had a lucky streak for eight days, everything seemed to go well. I'm not saying it was easy. I still had things go wrong and those kind of things, but I felt in a place from like, okay, we can deal with that. And that problem's cropped up. Mentally, I feel ready to go and deal with that. So I think I just... I. My plan was always to finish. I, the plan wasn't to win. I had produced a race plan based on we want to finish. First, last, couldn't care. Just want to finish because that's, that's the goal. 80% of people who start the race don't finish it. So if you can finish it, that's the achievement. So that was the planning. The preparation, the training was pretend you want to win it. Because then no matter what, you've got big enough engine and mental capacity and you, you can draw on whatever you need. So however bad it gets, we've got a deep enough you know, engine to get into to get to the finish line. And so I took off at the start line and I was, I was relaxed. I'm like, I, I have a plan. I'm going to do this pace from here to here. I don't care if I'm last. And I started literally at the back of the field on purpose, assuming that everyone would take off and leave me for dead. Um, <laughs> and I started at my pace quite comfortable. And 
I chewed through two-thirds of the field very early on. There was a, a core group of guys at the front who'd made it clear that they were out for the win, and they took off at the start line, and I kind of waved them goodbye and assumed that I would not see them until the finish at the end. Um, and I just stuck with my plan, and, and I just kept chewing through the field, chewing through the field, and then I caught up to a guy, I'm like, hang on, you're, you're third. Hey, what am I doing with you? <laughs> and then we kind of played cat and mouse ball, and then we got to a checkpoint, I'm like, that's the guy coming second, and the guy coming first just left. Wow. And then got a little further, I'm like, there's first, second, and third in a row walking together. And I kind of mosey put my best smile on like I was having a great day and pushed myself in the middle. Like, how are we, gents? What's happening? Um, and one of them said, ah, it's a race now, isn't it? And I said, yeah, I think it might be. Because at that point, we were about four days in. And I looked at it going, I know I can finish. There was zero doubt in my mind. I knew I had the finish in the bag, so the race would get done no matter what. And then I looked at it going, you know what? I feel pretty good. I think we're going to have a crack at this. I reckon I can get myself on the podium. I didn't think I could win at that point, but I thought, imagine coming third. Like, this is insane. This was never part of the plan. And so we, we headed out and we tackled it. And over the course of... The next kind of 24 to 36 hours, I managed to kind of wangle my way to the front. And then I, I remember quite clearly, I, I passed these the guys that were the um, first, second and third a bit further down the track again. We kind of separated and came together and separated and came together. And they were out front and I came in past them at about 2 o'clock in the morning. And they were all bivvied up, so they're in their swags, having a quick snooze on the side of the trail. And I looked at them and I thought, this is it. If you walk one step in front of these guys, you're in front. You'll be in the lead. So if you're going to do it, do it. But we don't give it back. Like, this is it. If you pass them, we, we're going for broke. No matter what, we go for the win. And it was really a mental conversation that I had that this is it. You're not giving it back. If you're taking it, you take it and you go and you keep it. And we still had the best part of 250 kilometres to go at this stage. So we still had days and days of racing. Um, but I had that mental conversation and went, yeah, we can do this. Back yourself. Let's go, and and that was literally the moment that I I took the lead, and then and then thankfully held it all the way to the finish. That guy, I'm fired up right now. I'm ready to run through a wall. Like I can I can run through a wall and just like scream run, and just succeed at anything after listening. To that. <laughs> Don't break your phone or anything. Calm down. Don't break. Your phone. <laughs> oh, it, it, like telling yourself that far out that once you take that step, you're not giving that back and you feel good and you know that you can push that far. And that that's, I mean, that I think that's what it's all about. Like, now I'm going to look at things yeah, we, in my life after hearing that and go, once I take this step, I'm not giving it back. I'm going to use that. I'm just going to steal it from you. <laughs> yeah, feel free. I probably stole it from someone else, I'm sure. But it was really interesting. There were a couple of things that kind of happened in the background. Um, at one point, one of those three leaders uh, had hypothermia, had a hypothermic episode, and the guys that were coming second and third stopped to help him out. Now, this was happening behind me, so I've taken the lead and, and headed out. Um, and they stopped to help him out, which is awesome. I mean, that's just being great humans. Um, so I got into the next checkpoint, excuse me, not aware of what had happened behind me, and the race director came out to me, and he said, look, this has happened behind you. Um, Didier, one of the guys, has got hypothermia. Patrick and David, the other two guys, stopped their race and assisted him. And by the time they helped him out, we got support out, we took them into the checkpoint, got him into hospital, brought those guys back out to where they were. That whole process took four hours and 47 minutes. So we're going to credit um, those guys that time. So that's going to come off their finish time. 
So he said, for you to win outright, you can't just win. You have to beat them by at least four hours and 47 minutes. So if you finish, and Patrick, who was a guy coming second at the time, if he crosses the line four hours and 46 minutes after you, he wins and you automatically become second. (laughs) And he's like, do you get... And he started to go into the hole. Now, this is how we figured out the time. We looked at their GPS tracker and what happened. I said, don't worry. What's the number? Tell me the number. And he said, four hours and 47 minutes. Thank you. I will now go out and deal with that number. I just need to know what that number is, and now I'll go deal with it. And and that's what I did. I just headed out and dealt with it. And the problem was, I don't know how far behind me they are, but they know where I am. As you go through checkpoints, you, you log in and out. So a checkpoint is a 26-foot trailer, open-air trailer, that you can get some hot water at, and that's it. There's nothing else there. But you will log in and log out. So Paul got there at you know, 15, 30 hours on the Friday afternoon and left at 16, 30 hours Friday afternoon. So they can see you going, okay, he got in there and he stayed here for that long and then he left. But I don't know what time they get in and out. So they know where I am and I don't know where they are, which was horrible mentally because in my head, they're just a mile behind me. They're just over that last mountain. They could be 100 miles behind me. I have no idea. But you just don't know. So that was playing in my mind. Um, and going back one step, another point you'd, you'd reminded me of, when I originally caught up with the guys, one of them said, we could cross the line together, you know. Like, we don't have to beat ourselves to death to have an out. We could, we could cross the line and be joint first, you know. That's, <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> and I thought about it. And, and part of me is like, oh, that'd be nice because otherwise it's going to be a brutal couple of days as we try and win. But another part of me thought of my boys at home, and I, and I said to the guys, I would rather my two boys see me take the chance and go for it and lose than finish win on a deal. Like the, and these, the guys was racing with the fantastic people. I mean, you know, they're, they're brilliant human beings. But I'm like, I've, I've got to do that. I'd rather them see me take a dip and go, hey, you didn't get it, than go, we did it because we had kind of a side deal and we kind of, you know, we took it easy for the last couple of days. I'm like, I, it just didn't sit comfortable with me. Um, and I think it was the, the suggestion was put forward half in just half in, we'll just throw this out here and see what we get. Um, but for me, it was really that thing going, yeah, no, I just I can't do that. I've, I've got to take the, take the chance and, and see what happens. Um, and in the end, um, so my official race time was 195 hours and 46 minutes. That's how long it took me to get from the start line to the finish line. And it literally came down to minutes. I won it by a matter of minutes in the end, which wow. is thoroughly depressing. We were, we were about 30 k's out from the finish line, and the race director drove out to me. I was on my own, and he's like, uh, Paul, I'm going to say this to you, and then I will drive to Patrick, who's coming second. I'm not going to tell you how far away he is. Um, it's going to come down to minutes. It, it will come down to minutes. And I'm like, I've been racing for 190 hours, mate, and you're telling me it's going to come down to minutes? Really? <laughs> and he's, he said, you need to do whatever you feel you need to do. But I'm telling you, it will it will be down to the minute. Well, thank you, Mark, for that hugely uplifting news. Thank you. And he drove down the road to top after that. And again, I had it was the second time in the race I had that mental discussion. I, I literally stopped and I stood there and went, okay, well, how bad do you want it? Because that's what we're going to do. How bad do you want it? Because if you want it, that's okay, but you're going to have to do some things to finish. Like, we're going to have to run now, and you've done 580 kilometres. You're 190 hours in. I've been sleeping about an hour, 20 a day, and you've got 30 kilometres to go, and they're hilly 30 kilometres. If you want to win, you're going to have to run. You're going to have to run that. So it really was that mental discussion going. And I, I said it out loud to myself. How bad do you want it? And I'm not, I said that I went, 
I would literally burn to the ground if that's what it takes to finish this. As long as I'm not dead, I'm not getting the finish line, we'll go. So I stripped off some layers, and I just kind of rejigged my sled, and I just said, we, we run, we start running. And like, it was like the worst run you've ever seen. <laughs> it was it was kind of a, a jog more than a real run, but that's what, I had, that's what I was capable of at the time. And you're running, and I could feel all the blisters in my feet were just exploding, and you, you know you're shredding your feet, and my back was just seizing up and screaming at me and having you know quite a vehement discussion with the rest of my body, going, what are you doing? Um, and I just kept going. The race photographer came out and, she was taking photos, and whenever a vehicle had come out, like the medics or the support crew drive past or the photographers, I made a point for the previous eight days of always stopping and saying hi, because they're out there too, and they're nice people, and have a chat, say hi. It, it's just, you know, good behaviour. And this, the photographer came out, and I said to her, no, nah, I can't talk. Sorry, got to go. I'm not stopping. I've got to put distance on this man. I'm really sorry, but I've got to go. And she's like, I totally get it. Keep going. Do your thing. That's fine. Um, but it really was just that, again, have that mental conversation. How bad do you want it? Do you want it? Well, then do the things that are required to get it. And and that's what I did. And then I, I got over the finish line and then sat there for four hours and 47 minutes and waited to see if Patrick got over the line um, in that time, which thankfully he didn't. Would you always say, Paul, that the comment you just made a second ago is do what it requires to get it? Have you always mm -hmm. been to do the things required to get a type of guy or did that like that happened at some point in your life where there was just like a transition to that or has it always been that way? I don't know. I have been described as a chronic overachiever. So maybe <laughs> it's, uh, maybe, maybe it's in there somewhere. Um, I don't know. I think, I think part of the reason I got into mountain climbing and part of the reason I got into um, ultra running is that I find that they're not just a great physical test, but they're a spectacular physical and emotional and mental test. If you're a spiritual person, I think they're, they're a good spiritual test as well, if that's your thing. I think there are a few things that I find that is a singular task or event that will test you through all of those, sometimes simultaneously, sometimes individually. And I, I really like that about those because it really, you learn so much about yourself. And that's where that, that failure, the DNF in 2017 was so valuable because I learned so much about I, yeah, the logistics of the race and the things I got wrong. Um, but I also learned a lot about myself. Wow, you really folded at night. Like you just mentally crumbled a fair bit there. And, and you really struggled in those areas. And those times were strong for you. Wow, I, I didn't know about that. And you need to, we need to tighten up on that area and strengthen up that area and, you know, be positive about that area and celebrate a few wins here. And you do, you just, you come away from it, kind of win, lose or draw. But you come away a different person and, and hopefully you can utilize the lessons to become a better person rather than coming back and feeling like you failed. Well, technically you did, but <laughs> what else did you get? I mean, what else did you get out of it though? It's like you failed, but you got a goodie bag of all these learnings and tools and things that you got out of it. So dig into that instead. What is, uh, do, do your kids realize, I don't know how old they are. I know you have kids. One in three. Yeah. So, so they don't even realize really what's going on. It's like, Oh, dad's pulling a sled behind him. Cool. Yeah, yeah. No, they. Um, I got home after not seeing them for 21 days, and I couldn't wait to get home and see them. And I ran in the door, and they're like, "Hi, Dad." <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, really? So, so, so like, so that's almost like an immediate humbled. 
immediately because these yeah. two humans who are closest to you have no idea what you just did. Like, oh, it's dad. What's up, dad? Yeah, it's, and look, it's really good. And look, my wife and I have a great relationship about this. Like, I rang her after the race and, and being my usual, you know, humble self, I rang her and she answered and said, somebody married a champion. And she immediately said, don't forget the day you get home, Campbell's got swimming lessons and I'm at work, so you need to be ready to take him to swim. That's kind of, that's great, but it's the real world. Let's get into that, please. And I think that's I think that's really healthy to go, you know, that's, that's cool. Good job. Let's get back to work. Yeah. Yeah. That's, well, that's definitely like, I mean, your attitude to win the race, your mindset to win the race, you're not going to, you can't be a person that's like, uh, just reveling in the victory over and over and over again. Your immediate thoughts go, okay, let's get to work again. I mean, that's how you got yeah. there in the first place. Yeah. Look, I literally got home. I finally arrived home on a Thursday night and like first thing Friday morning, like, my wife's at work and I'm going to take the boys to swimming lessons and you've got work to do and it's kind of like and in some ways I liked getting straight back into it because it, it reminds you that yes that you've had this great experience and you had a great outcome but you've still got all these things going on that you need to, to focus on and it just keeps you well grounded I think so you don't get carried away thinking that you might be something you're not um I mean, look, I will, I've got ultra runs coming up later this year, and I guarantee you I will be in the last half of the field somewhere tottering along. You know, it's not like I go out and, and, and win these all the time. It's, it's not the case at all. But it's it's good to see, yep, you got the high, and this, this, you know, you had the win here. It all went right. But by the same token, just remember you're a normal person and you have responsibilities, and, and it just, I think it helps balance out really well. So how many ultra runs do you do a year? Well, technically, this year I was chatting to a mate of mine. He's like, oh, we could do this race and do that race. I said, look, I'd love to. But I just did 13 and a half marathons in March in a week. What? So I might take a leave part. Well, that's 383 miles. That's like oh, yeah, yeah. really 15, 14 marathons in March. I'm like, I, I don't think I need to do any more this year. I think I'm good. <laughs> but, look, I, I tend to do... Uh, look, we, we might get four competitive runs in a year. When I say competitive, as in like they're, they're big events. Um, I'm not going there to win. That's never going to happen in the month of Sundays. But I'm going there to run because I really enjoy the event. Um, and we've got a, a group of mates, a group of dads that I run with, and we kind of run them. That's our a lot of our outlet of going, hey, on the weekend we'll catch up and we'll go for a run and have our time and have a chat and that kind of stuff. And I, I think that's been really healthy as well, not just from the physical point of view, but as a, a group of dads with young kids, we're all about the same mark, um, to be able to kind of go, how are your kids going? What's happening? And how are you feeling? All those kind of things. I think that has been beneficial on like a whole host of levels. I think that's been really good. So I diverse a little bit from your original question. No, <laughs> no, that, that, I mean, I like, I, I kind of dig that it's all dads. You all have something relatable and you run. I will say this. You also didn't expect to win uh, the last race. No, true. <laughs> <laughs> it, it seems to be the, the, the longer the race, the better I go. So I think maybe that's why I got into ultras. I seem to just, I obviously have a physical capacity and definitely a mental capacity where I can, I can generally grind people out over the longer distance. So, you know, the longer it is, the better we're going to the better experience we're going to have. Yeah, that's crazy. So you uh, you talked about changing your training going from 2017 to 2019. So full disclosure, I saw Brian McKenzie posted about your yep. win, and that's how I was kind of uh, drawn to your story. So mm -hmm. do you think his training 
um, kind of going through the art of breath and like the gears and everything without going too much detail into that kind of focused mm -hmm. your mental clarity during that race in 2019? Yeah, it made a huge difference. So on the 2017 race, I trained, pretty much trained myself um, because, you know, I thought I was smart enough to do that. Turns out, maybe not. <laughs> and I, I came back from 2017. And look, I went to, when I went to the 2017 race, I was in excellent physical state. For, for, I was really happy with how I prepared and how I turned up to the start line. Um, but I came back and went, maybe you don't know as much as you think you know. Let's assume you know nothing. Just throw it all out and let's find the smartest people in the room about endurance. And I'd, I'd done some of Brian McKenzie's work like six or seven years ago, back when he was in, even longer than that, when he was in CrossFit endurance and that kind of background, really in his early days. So I kind of, and I'd been following the stuff that he'd done. So I went, okay, these guys are phenomenally smarter than you. So do what they tell you to do. So I signed up and, and trained uh, under the Power Speed Endurance Training Program, their run program for a full year and I just did whatever they told me to do. Um, I added into it with some more race specific work, long tire drags, long sled drags, overnight work um, and a fair bit of just static bike work like jump on a, an airdyne and, and spend hours there. And the breath work I incorporated, just the nasal breathing, I found really, really good in terms of helping you to remain calm and just to build a really good aerobic base. Problem is when you're in the Arctic environment, as soon as you step outside, all your sinuses fill with fluid and you instantly freeze. So you can't nasal breathe anyway. So, but I knew that was coming. Okay, good. I, was I knew that, that was coming. Through experience, I knew that was coming. But what it had taught me back at home training in that way, just it had taught me to remain calm. So when you do a lot of their breath work and integrate it into their training, it really does teach you to, to, you know, they're talking about carbon dioxide or CO2 tolerance, but that manifests mentally as panic stations. You know, your body's going, you need to breathe. We're not breathing. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> and it teaches you to remain calm in those situations and also get the adaptation that you're getting a better engine. Your CO2 tolerance is going up and, and all the things that are commensurate with that. So I found their training to be invaluable both at a physical level and a kind of a mental level and I've actually I literally just came back from their Art of Breath seminar yesterday um, and even having spent a full year training and reading about it and doing it I still got an enormous amount out of it so I think that's been for me um, I think that's been really valuable and I should note I'm not sponsored by them in any way and Brian's not going to send me a free cap or a t-shirt no, <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I was actually like no I just I would just assume that you were kind of like a sponsored athlete by them and not like sending any of us free stuff but like I just assumed you were free. You paid for the programming just like we would pay for any sort of programming that we would want to train under. You're just like, yeah, I'll sign yep. up for that and just do whatever they say, yep. and and then that works yep. out. And that's exactly it. I, it. It might be silly, but I, I, as a personal point of difference, I have a problem going to people going, hey, can you sponsor me to do this thing that I haven't done yet that may or may not go well? <laughs> I, really, <laughs> I just I can't do I just can't do that. So I just, yeah, I signed up and they didn't know me from a bar or so, but I signed up and, and paid my money and took their training program and went out into my shed and started doing all the things they told me to do. Um, and look, I was really comfortable with that because, I mean, yes, looking back now, retrospectively, like, wow, you're the winner and, you know, comes with a lot of media and blah, blah, blah. But that wasn't the plan. The plan was just to finish it. And if I'd gone there and been successful and finished it, probably outside of my own town, I live in a, in a regional town, um, outside of the people here who knew me and followed me, 
um, no one would know anything about it. I think I found that 2017, I don't have a lot of photos of me from the course um, because I was just middle of the pack and only lasted half the race. Um, 2019, I'm like, wow, everyone's taking photos of me all of a sudden and, and the interview me <laughs> like, That's a, when you get to the front of the field, you're a far more interesting person. All of a sudden. So, and I'm like, this is great because I'm going to get a heap of photos I wouldn't have got. So I'll take all of that. That's fantastic. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a case of going, I was just happy to be, you know, Joe Public doing the thing, going out and, and doing it for me. Um, and that, that kind of harks back a bit to that point of going, why do I pick these races or mountains? Um, because I want to do it for me, because I want to be in that place and, and do that thing. And if no one ever knows, I'm okay with that. Um, years ago, back in my climbing background, I, I got offered a spot to do an Everest expedition. And I, and I sat back and thought about it and went, you know what? When I really deeply be honest with myself, a large part of why I, I would go do that at that time was because I wanted to tell other people that I had done it. And I think that's a terrible reason to go, um, particularly on a, you know, a, a, an outing that can be that dangerous. So I like the fact that now I look at events and go, okay, first of all, just let some time go past, a month or two. And if you think about it every day for a month or two, then you really want to do it. So that's the first tip. Second, if you did it and no one ever knew, do you care? No, I want to do it. Excellent. Then we're going there for the right reasons. Now we can we can invest and, and you know see if it's going to work and go from there. And they've kind of been two two hurdles for me mentally. I like to get over before I sign up for something that's going to take time away from you know family and friends and commitment and money and all those kind of things. Let's let's check a few boxes first to make sure we're real serious about this for the right reasons. That the that is something that I I've never I, I haven't really like put it into words or thought about it that way but that's the true it's probably the true definition of something that you're passionate about so if it if somebody yeah, yeah. if somebody like if you're doing it for somebody else then you're not passionate about it you're just passionate about showing off but if yep. you're doing it like this race and this just clicked in my head when you were talking about this situation nobody didn't nobody hardly anybody knew it was even going on no, no, it's hardly, I think still hardly anyone knows that it happened. It's been running for 11 years now, I think. Um, but yeah, it, it, and I think you've really hit the nail on the head. You're passionate about it. And it also means if it's a sporting event, when, when the chips are really down and it's really going wrong, if you are passionate about it, you'll, you'll most likely find a way through. If there's any capacity in there, you'll do it. If you're there just because I wanted to tell the blokes at the pub that I did it or get famous or do it for my sponsors or whatever, I think when you find yourself backed into a corner, it's very easy to look for a door and get out. Um, whereas if you're like, I'm here for me because I want this for me, so we're doing this. Uh, I think it helps you in those kind of darker moments of these kind of events. That's, that's crazy what you're talking about. Like, I, I think I, as a CrossFit coach, sometimes I'll tell my, like, athletes this sometimes, like, what you do in the dark will come to the light. Like, what you, mm. do, when you, what you do when nobody's looking is going to make the difference when everybody's looking. And, uh, and it better be for yourself. So you talked about, like, how you approached a lot of people that you said were smarter than you going into this race. Well, just listening to you talk, like, for this hour here, I don't know if you realize it, but like as far as like the mental acuity that you have for this type of a thing, I would say you're one of the smart people in the room when it comes to that kind of thing. How are you going to pass that on to other people? Well, I thank you very much. That's fantastic for my ego, and I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I do, I do a lot of public speaking, and, and it's been interesting. A lot of people, uh, and this is locally for me, a lot of people followed me because I came out of 2017 and was very public about, I went and did this thing and failed. Let's talk about what I learned out of that and, and would look at my mountain climbing and then racing background and then talk about the lessons that I got out of that. Um, so I think when I went back in 2019, a lot of people were like, I don't know how you summed up the, you know, the intestinal fortitude to go back and do it again, but now we're really uh, we're emotionally invested locally to kind of see how this pans out because I've been quite open and honest about how I felt and, and what went wrong and what went right and, you know, the emotional side of it and those kind of things. So I think that's, that's given me a platform. And now particularly winning it, I've now got a very large platform that I can kind of leverage off to go out and, and talk about the training of what I learned and what worked and what didn't and then how it can apply for other people. And I like the fact that it's not a case of, you know, I'm not an Olympian. I don't turn up and go, you know, you too can win a gold medal and people are like, well, <laughs> not. But I can turn up and go, hey, I'm a, you know, below average height dad with poor eyesight who's a nerd with two kids who somehow managed to do all these things. So, you know, who knows what you can do, but let's talk about those kind of things. And I think it helps people kind of look at me and go, he kind of looks normal. Um, maybe I can do some stuff. I may not go and do a race in the Arctic, but he doesn't look like, you know, he's a six foot four Adonis who was always going to be good at sport. He's just a nerdy guy. So, and, and I'm a parent or what have you, and I can relate a bit to that. So I think that gives me a bit of a, a leg up to kind of talk to people and share my story and hopefully allow them to get something out of it. I always joke when I'm talking to particularly school groups and go, you know, here are all my plans I had in high school. Please note the none of them actually happened. I was going to do this and I didn't get in and I was going to be one of these and that didn't work. And, and I look back now and go, oh, thank God none of them worked. Imagine my life now to be completely different. So I think that that, that honesty of, of what worked and what didn't and saying that, yeah, I, I failed at this and, you know, that didn't pan out the way I thought it would, um, gives people a degree of trust to go, okay, I can I can relate to you now. I'm prepared to be open enough to take away some of your lessons and then go see if I can maybe apply some of it in what I do. Yeah, being relatable is, is I mean, so important for people to realize. Uh, just starting this thing, the, the podcast, um, mm. I'm just – you know, going to talk on it myself, right? And I start interviewing people thinking it's going to be easy, but then I find myself getting nervous in situations like, oh man, I'm talking to my first ultra runner today. I'm going to be, I'm, I'm like, I'm actually nervous right now. Like, this is exciting. I, I'm, it, it's a good nerves, but it's, I'm nervous. And then once I get started, like we're having this conversation, we're talking on it just a little bit before. I'm like, this guy's a regular guy, just like me. Like he just yep. did something crazy and, and insane and really epic. But that means I can do that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people forget that you're on your end of the phone getting nervous going, I'm going to talk to this guy. And I'm on the other end of the phone going, I'm nervous and doing this podcast. I don't want to screw it up. <laughs> people forget that they have this, this and, and I talk a bit about this to people going, people have their own story. You tell yourself a story in your head going, I'm nervous because this person's going to be bad and I'm not bad and I should feel this. It's like, think about the opposite of that. They might be as nervous as you are or maybe you're telling yourself that you're not capable or you're going to get this wrong or what have you. Well, maybe tell yourself you're going to be all right. It's going to be great. We'll just dive in and see what happens. So it's, yeah, people often have an image of, of what's happening on the other side and it's nothing like what's actually happening on the other side. Well, yeah, that's what that's what this thing has, 
has taught. It's one of the things I love most about doing this. And I was actually going to ask you a little bit about your public speaking, like how scary it was to first get up there and do like a public talk in front of an an audience. But that's one thing I've learned here is that we're all we're it's it's the same human being like mold. It just mm. all they did was they're either genetically gifted in some way and they maximized that gift or they mm. worked really hard to get there. Uh, and they outwork yeah. people. But um, I guess go back and let's just give me an outline. Was it was public speaking difficult for you when you transitioned? Like when you started to do that, did that scare you at all or give you any nerves or? No, thankfully I've been granted the gift of being able to stand up and talk to people and, and quite enjoy it. And I think because the topic is, like you said, it's something you're passionate about. And if you're prepared to be really honest with people, they get you get buying. You can feel it in the room when they're like they're actually paying attention and they're interested. And and I really enjoy telling the story. So for me, I'm one of those weird people that really don't mind public speaking at all. I quite enjoy it. Um, and I can just share the story with people. Um, and I like like you mentioned before. You know, some people have just worked their butt off to to get to do what they do. And I, one of the photos I share with people, I I did the same trek. This is the Kokoda Track, which is in Papua New Guinea, north of Australia. So it's a 96 kilometer, really mountainous jungle trek that was made famous in World War Two. And I've done it twice. And I've got two photos of me doing it, and they're 10 years apart. And the first one, it's obvious that I am struggling and it's not going to plan. It's just, you know, it's not a flattering picture. And then the photo 10 years later is me doing it and, you know, having a great time doing it. You know, it's an entirely different experience. And I, I show people that picture and go, if you only see the picture on the right, the guy who's really doing it really well, it's easy to tell yourself the story that, well, it's easy for him. Look at him. He's good at this stuff. He just does it all the time. And therefore, it's okay that I'm not good at it you need to understand that there's a second picture. You know, I'm good at it because I spent 10 years being really average at it until I got good at it. So I try and encourage people not to look at other people and go, well, they're a natural, they're gifted, or, you know, it's easy for them. Well, it might not, it might be now, but it may not always have been that way. So don't expect yourself to become an overnight success or to suddenly have, you know, a great skill in this area. Most people have grounded out for a long time before you saw them suddenly doing it easily or, you know, apparently easily or something like that. I think you just named your, your first book. Yeah. Ten Years <laughs> to Victory. <Yeah. laughs> well, you, you jest, but I'm 30,000 words into my first book. At the awesome. Oh, oh, that's I'm awesome. Busy typing. I get. I always go. I always go. This isn't interest. People aren't going to be interested in this. But then after like every, I can't walk down the street without people going. Oh, Paul! I had this great idea. You should write a book. Like, <laughs> Thank you. That that's a fantastic idea. The, the last thirty people have mentioned it also. Thank you. I I think I'm, I'm getting a message that I should do this. So I've kind of gone. Okay, I'll start throwing some words on a page, and if I think it's going to work I'll do it and if it doesn't I won't but so I sat down and just started writing out the the race as it panned out in 2019 just that aspect and I've racked up a fair few pages so at this point I'm thinking maybe we can put something together hopefully I would for sure I think two guys in this room are going to for sure read that book yeah, all right. I'll be honest that's because there's, there's you two and my mum that's like three copies hey, all right. like, this thing will be huge <laughs> I'll be honest with you Paul like as I've been sitting here like listening to like your mental like or the way you've kind of described this whole process like I've just been jotting down at least five quotes you said that I'm going to use like and share with other people 
<clears throat> and I think that's oh, a, thank you. Oh man, that's I think that's a good like way to like look at yourself as a book. Like you have a really a good gift for putting your whole adventure and process to get there into words. Um, and you know, that's kind of what Aaron and I wanted to do with this is like have people on and mm-hmm. do something like that to kind of share that. And the fact that you are, I mean, yeah, you're doing an amazing job. If it means anything from us. Um, I do have one question because I saw it on your journal and it, it touches my heart a little bit. Is it true you did a CrossFit competition like a few weeks before you did this race? Yeah, I yeah, did. I I'm, I'm a CrossFit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. Um, so I'm a, I'm a CrossFit coach as well and I owned my own affiliate for oh, seven years. Um, and I got a message from a really good mate a bit before the company. He's like, I know that you shouldn't, and I, and I know there's no logical reason why this would fit in your training, and it's probably a terrible idea. But do you want to do a, a partner's comp with me? And it's a two-day comp. And I'm like, hell yeah, let's do that. And I'm like, yeah, log- logically, it's like so you're training for like an ultra of ultras, and you're going to go out and do this kind of you know five breathing, five-minute workout, two-day comp. And I'm like... Yeah, because it, hey, he's a really good mate. So I'm like, you know what? Let's let's. That's going to be the training for the weekend. We'll we'll go throw down together, um, and I think that's healthy as well. Um, and part of it was I've not done a lot of really short, horrible workouts, and I needed to do some short, horrible work because there's just no escape. There's nowhere to hide in those things. Like you do an ultra or you do a marathon, and you're like. Well, I'm not feeling good. I'll back off the pace or I'll, I'll get to this checkpoint and maybe spend a little few extra minutes grabbing some of the lollies off the table, you know, and just take a break. But you know what it's like. You're in a, a 10, 12-minute workout You got, and there's like a crowd and you're working with a partner who's relying on you. You have nowhere to hide at all. So I felt that that was beneficial to some degree as a training methodology anyway so we went and did it and it was horrific <laughs> we had a great time um, you know my legs didn't work for like four days but it was it was it was good and i think there was a yeah the the train the mental training aspect was really good maybe it wasn't the best physical training for the week but i came out of it mentally and emotionally in a good space going that was great. Threw down with a great buddy. You know, got some fitness on, got sweaty, caught up with a bunch of people. And as a coach, as a CrossFit coach, I think it's important that your members see you out suffering from time to time to go, yeah, good. Next time you yell at me in class, I'll, I'll probably listen to you. Because I've seen you suffering, sweating and crying for a little bit. So I also think that's not a bad thing as well. Well, that that brings up something that, that I've kind of seen proven in one of my friends. Um a really good friend of mine, professional golfer, uh, really good. And he went through like a little bit of a rough patch, but he was always real care. He, he loves to do a wide variety of things and he restricted himself from doing those things. So he would be healthy to play these golf tournaments because that's how he made money. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now that he's kind of taken a step back from pro golf because, you know, just taking a break, he's doing mm-hmm. some of these other things, playing basketball, doing a little bit more extreme sports that, and he's playing better golf. Because yep. yeah. he's being him. He's being what he likes to do. Is He's relaxed. And so yep. I think that brings up a good point that we can sometimes get a little bit too focused on that end goal and lose track of who we are. Yeah, and you forget that not all training is physical. Like people forget that there's this whole other side of your mental and emotional approach to it. And sometimes that requires you doing things that don't necessarily seem to make sense in your training plan or your training program, but will be equally valid in 
part of a training program, if that makes sense. So yeah, it's it's you still got to be you. Yeah, just important to keep that in there. That's 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 good, man. It's I like part it. Part of that self, it's part of that self care of going. You know, when I was racing, I'd, I'd, I'd have kind of a, a mental checklist, a physical checklist you'd run through fairly regularly just to kind of, as part of your self-care process of, you know, how's the body going? What are we doing nutrition-wise? What's the pace look like? What's the inner dialogue like? When are we going to sleep? Those kind of things. And you come back from the race and you go, why don't you apply that every day? Why don't you do a little bit of this, this, this little mental self-care every day? You know, how we're feeling? What are we talking about? How you talking to the kids or your partner or what's going on at work and just, you know, you don't have to become a, a Zen monk about it and just, you know, be, you know, Jocko level disciplined every day. <laughs> uh, it's, good have, it's good to have just that little checklist of going, yeah, you know, you, 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 you snapped at your three-year-old because he did something wrong, but he probably did it because he's tired and he's tired because you've been running him around town trying to get all your work done and jobs done and now he's exhausted. It's like, well, it's probably not his fault, is it? It's probably your fault. So maybe you should apologise and, you know, do better next time. So just those little examples that come across in my own life going, hey, let's just, that checklist is good for a race. You can probably use that every day, every now and then if you're getting a little off the, you know, off the rails a little bit, so... It's handy. Yeah, it's really handy. <laughs> yes. Well, man, this has been this has been an hour, Paul, and I absolutely enjoyed it. Is there where can people find any of the stuff uh, where you're going to run your next marathon? Because I'll be more, like, I would love to keep track of how you do in these ultras, just because. Um, and so anywhere on, they man. can find you. Um, yeah, so you can find me on all the usual social medias. You'll find me on Instagram uh, at watto, W-T-O-3280. Uh, you'll find me, your website is roadslesstraveled.com.au. Uh, you'll find me there, and I put up some blog pieces and, and those bits and pieces. Um, uh, yeah, you'll find me on the, the, the Book of Faces, we call it, Facebook and LinkedIn, all the usual places <laughs> you'll find me there. So um, I've got, uh, ultra-wise, got a couple of runs coming up later this year, which are just runs heading out with mates. We've got a, a 100K coming up in September we're looking forward to. Um, I've got a good mate who, for his 40th, we're going to head over to Cambodia and do a, a, an ultra-marathon through all the temples and stuff through there, which we're really looking forward to. Uh, and there's some kind of scribbles on the whiteboard, maybe, of trying to get a um, there's a, a great ultra in Namibia, in um, Africa, later next year that I'd kind of be keen to do because it's really warm there. There's no snow, there's no ice, and it's warm all the time. <laughs> so I think that would be I think that would be good. <laughs> we, there's a few few wheels in motion and a few plans. Yeah, a little bit of vitamin D. A little bit of vitamin D doesn't hurt. Yeah, that, that can't be bad, can it? Like, <laughs> no, no. Well, I have to say, if anybody has not read your blog and your little post that you put up there, that is one thing that will convince you that you need to write a book right there. Because I, I read a few stories just today sitting out there drinking coffee this morning. Um, yeah. I, I was like, I found myself getting involved in it. Like, whoa, this is really well done. I like this. It, it just, the, I, the story speaks to me and you paint a good picture. Paul, you did on this podcast, like all these stories had my imagination running and, and it had me almost there with you, like watching you like a TV show. So you really oh, got well, Thank you so much. That means a lot. And we'll, we'll definitely have to have another chat because that hour went for like three minutes and it was gone. So we'll definitely have to keep in touch and, and keep you posted. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes for sure. Uh, I mean, more than happy anytime you want to be on. If there's something that you have, you want to... You want to get out, just send me a message and I'll put it out there too. 
um, because I really appreciate this. I'll do anything I can to support the the Paul Watkins race and book <laughs> and anything else that you have going on. Brian and I both will for, for sure. sure. Yeah. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Brian. I really appreciate it. I've loved it. I, and this is why I enjoy giving talks and stuff because I love having the conversation with people and, and I get as much out of it as, as hopefully other people do. So, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Cool. Well, thanks, Paul. Thank you, Paul.